0: listening to the best of Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio.
1: Welcome to Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, keeping you connected to your faith and your world. Teresa tackles the issues of faith and culture, the pro-life message and media awareness. And now here's Teresa Tamio. Really looking forward to this interview as I know you are as well, Father Dwight Longenecker a wonderful teacher of the faith, a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, a convert to Catholicism, a very interesting journey indeed, which is what we're discussing this morning. His book, There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey, published by Ignatius Press. So, Father, a lot of great endorsements for this book, including our very own Marcus Grodi and Jeanette and Joseph Pearson and so many others. Yours is, I mean, every, every testimony, every journey is unique, but yours is, I would say, among the most unique I've, <laughs> I've heard about. So, first of all, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
1: All right. So, the title is, I think, a lot of fun There and Back Again, a somewhat religious odyssey. So, explain from where the title comes.
3: Of course, um,
2: listeners who are familiar with J.R. Tolkien and The Hobbit will realize that that is the title that Bilbo Baggins gave to hit the story of his adventure there and back again. So, uh, I like borrowing stuff from my favorite authors, and that seemed appropriate title because I was brought up in America and um, attended college in Greenville, South Carolina, went to England, for, stayed there for 25 years, and then came back again to be ordained as a Catholic priest. So there and back again.
1: So what led you first on your journey across the pond? Start there.
2: Well, when I was at college at Bob Jones University, I came down with a serious illness called anglophilia, <laughs> the love of all things English. Uh, I've been reading English literature, and um, I was, we were able to attend a little Anglican church, a breakaway Anglican church. I say breakaway, breakaway from the Episcopal Church. And it was called the Anglican Orthodox Church. And uh, so I visited the, uh, Great Britain a couple of times and um, got the idea that it would be great to be an Anglican priest in England. Uh, so I got had this dream of being uh, a priest of a little country church in a beautiful little English village. You know, the sort of things you see on these um, British TV shows.
1: Right, right.
2: The, the ones where usually somebody's getting murdered every week. So that was the dream, to go and, and be the uh, vicar, to be the parish priest of, in one of those beautiful old churches, a nice old village. A beautiful dream. And uh, so I set off for England, was accepted to study theology at Oxford, uh, and... Uh, that led step-by-step step to being ordained into the Church of England.
1: We're talking with a Father Dwight Logenecker there, and back again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey, is the book we're discussing. Okay, so at what point did Catholicism start creeping into your thoughts and, and prayers?
2: Well, it actually started quite early with when I was still a student at Bob Jones University. I went out and did yard work every Saturday for a local woman who was a very simply, simply devout Catholic, Um, she was quite well-educated and and cultured, but not in a fancy way. But she just accepted me, and we became friends. And uh, then when I went to England, my understanding of the Anglican faith was very much more on the Catholic side. I began to appreciate the sacraments and understand the priesthood. Uh, And within the Anglican Church, as most listeners will know, you can actually, actually do things in a fairly Catholic way, and have a fairly Catholic understanding of the Church. And so I was moving in that dire- direction during my uh, theological education and then in my experience in the act of the Church. And this was punctuated by various um, experiences, which I explain in, sto- in, in the book. Visiting a Catholic monastery, going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from England, staying in monasteries along the way, Going to Medjugorje in the early 1980s and various other things which therefore let me closer and closer to the Catholic faith
1: mm. so in terms of Mary being that this is a queenship of Mary that we're celebrating today, how did you feel about Mary before you even were in the Anglican Church since you did have some exposure to a very faithful Catholic woman, did you have issues with Mary because I know for a lot of converts, there are a lot of issues with the Marian dogmas
2: yeah, um, and of course it was the same for me i I had inherited the usual prejudices against the veneration of the Blessed Mother. Um, from my Protestant fundamentalist background, I can remember one time, for instance, reading a theological book about Mary by a German writer, and she and the writer called Mary, Gottes Mutter, and I thought it was it meant I thought it meant Mother Goddess, and I said they're right, Catholics worship a Mother Goddess, and then someone said, no, you don't understand German goddess Mutter is actually the trans- translated as Mother of God. Mother so of God. Then, right. Mm. And so that was explained to me. And the more I learned about the Marian dogmas was combined with someone giving a rosary when they came back from the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham in England, a visit to Medjugorje, like I said, and various other things which gradually opened up my heart uh, and my mind uh, to accept the acceptance of the Marian dogmas.
1: You're describing your your interest in in England and being in, you know, the country church. It just, it sounds so idyllic and and really it's something I've always wanted to do. I've never been to to Great Britain. I've been to the airport in London Heathrow to get over to, let's say, a pilgrimage or another location. But that's on my bucket list to go and, you know, and to see all the beautiful countryside, the Cotswold cottages and everything. It just sounds so, so peaceful and so, you know, as I said, you know, something that you, you dream of and you see on the, you know, the PBS shows and all these different specials that you mentioned. Was it hard to leave that?
2: Absolutely. Um, I I had gone to England with this dream of, you know, the English countryside and the beautiful old churches and the beauties of Anglicanism. And I discuss all of this in the book. I talk about the beauties of Anglicanism and where we finally ended up. And um, that came true. I was finally, at the end point, I was a vicar on the Isle of Wight in England Mm. uh, with two beautiful old churches, a thousand-year-old churches, and so my dream had come true, uh, and by this time I was married with two young children, and so we had to make a very difficult decision.
1: What was that like? It must have been hard for you.
2: Of course it was, um, because at this point I was in my um, late 30s. Uh, I hadn't trained for any other career. We had to sort of change gears, find a new house, find a new job, support my family, um, and that began um, a difficult time.
1: But it's something that when you feel it in your heart, when you're called to do that, you have to go in that direction, right?
2: Yeah. And it was, it was a step of uh, obedience, uh, but it was not an easy step. But at the same time, at this point, no regrets, the Lord has opened up doors of ministry and opened up ways uh, uh, to a deeper understanding of Him in the Catholic Church that they never would have had in the Anglican
1: church. I love the way the Lord works in our life where we get into a situation where we feel like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm hitting my goals. I'm, I'm living the life. I'm living the dream. And then things start to change. And then we sometimes don't see why God took us, allowed us to go on a particular path, because he never forces us to do anything. We have free will. Why he takes us on a particular path. And then we realize that it's being used for his glory when we thought all the time, well, we're all that in a bag of chips, and we have what we want. But let's talk about your experience in England, and also coming from fundamentalism. How you think that helped prepare you as a Catholic pastor today?
2: I think one of the things which we picked up from the Anglican Church was the importance of beauty in worship. The uh, Church of England retains all of the ancient medieval churches that from, from, from before the Reformation, and the cathedrals and the abbey churches and so forth. And they do maintain a beautiful a lot of in a lot of them they maintain a beautiful formal liturgy. They have a wonderful musical tradition which goes right back into the Middle Ages and is rooted in the the Gregorian chant and the beautiful hymnody of the nineteenth century, eighteenth and nineteenth century. And so, um, I've brought a lot of those experiences and a lot of that um, knowledge into the worship in the Anglican Church. So. Um, In our new church in Greenville, South Carolina, for instance, and the last part of the book, I I sort of bring all these threads together. Um, You know, we have we celebrate the Novus Ordo Mass, but in a very Mm -hmm. traditional way, Um, and a lot of that is influenced by the liturgy which I would have celebrated in the Anglican Church. So it's not an Anglican liturgy, but it's the Novus Ordo of the Catholic Church, but celebrated with beautiful music, beautiful architecture, beautiful vestments, beautiful um, uh, music, and so forth.
1: Where do you see us going in terms of witnessing in the world in which we're living? What do you think is most important for me? I forget to whom I was just speaking about this. I believe one-on-one witness in turning people to Christ in the church is, at the end of the day, the most important thing. So what are you seeing as someone who's on the front lines?
2: One of my most recent books is called Beheading Hydra, a radical plan for Christians in an atheistic age. And an awful lot of people are disturbed and confused and bewildered by what's going on in the world and in the church today. And in that book, I try to outline some of the reasons for this, and then also outline in the second half of the book what we need to do. And what we need to do is just get back to basics. Um, Don't worry so much about get or worry so much about what's going on in the wider world or what the gossip you're reading on social media. Instead, focus on your prayers, focus on your local community, focus on your family. Uh, focus on your relationship with the Lord and and uh, change the world by doing what you can with what you have where you are. And when we do that and we get local and we get real, um, a lot of the worries and a lot of concerns we have will soon disappear.
1: Amen. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for this book. Thank you for sharing your journey there and back again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. Our guest has been Father Dwight Longenecker. He is a pastor of a beautiful parish in Greenville, North Carolina. And his latest book, of course, published by our friends at Ignatius Press, There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. Fascinating story.
4: on the next epiphany
1: those who are begotten by God commit no sin St. John implores this in his first letter Vanessa Denhagarmo here our faithful and trustworthy friend Monica Miller joins us to talk frankly about Fiducia Supplicant and offers ways to keep focused on God
0: Epiphany weekdays at noon and be sure to catch past episodes in our archive at
4: AveMariaRadio.net Light of the East, weekends on Ave Maria Radio. I am Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, so much decorating, so many lights to put up. It is the ancient iconography of the church, even one painted by our Blessed Mother herself, that will explain our need for imagery. Now on Ave Maria Radio's newest FM stations, 105.5 FM in Southfield and 107.9 FM in Ann Arbor.
1: Catholic Connection, thanks for tuning in to the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. It's an honor to have Miriam Grossman, M.D., back with us. She's been on with us uh, many times. She's done some phenomenal work in helping us understand what's being done to our young people, especially our children, thanks to the culture and so many bad decisions being made all over the place, including this push for so-called uh, you know, transgender ideology. It's just off the charts, out of control. And her latest book is entitled Lost in Trans Nation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness with a foreword by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. And if you're not familiar with Miriam Grossman, MD's work, you should be, you probably are already, but she is a board certified child expert in child adolescence and... Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for joining us. What led you to do this book? The research on this is incredible. I was telling you as we were getting prepared to speak with you this morning that I've been reading the book. It's phenomenally well-documented, but it's also, even for someone like me who's been out there covering stories and seeing a lot of crazy things, I had to at one point put the book down because it's such a travesty what's happening. Thank you for your work. But what, what prompted this particular book for you?
3: Well, Teresa, thank you so much for having me on again. It's always wonderful to be on with you. What prompted me to write this book was my, the years that I've spent the past few years seeing kids who are confused about their sex and their, and their parents. And I've been practicing psychiatry for almost 40 years, Teresa. And, you know, I've seen all sorts of situations, all sorts of extremely difficult, painful situations. But this has been the most difficult issue that I have ever dealt with. These kids who have been led to believe that it's possible to be born in the wrong body, it's possible to actually be the other sex in your mind, and... and Need to uh, modify your body in order to uh, have it, you know, uh, coordinate with your feelings. This is what young people are being taught from a very, very early age. There are books now that are written to be read to preschoolers that say things like, you know, uh, sometimes the adults make a mistake when a baby is born and they assume that that baby is a boy or a girl only you know if you're a boy or a girl or both or neither or some variation only you can say and so I am seeing these kids who have been some of them very deeply indoctrinated and uh in addition to being indoctrinated into this false belief, Teresa, the other part of this that is so awful is that they are indoctrinated to believe that anybody that will not go along with it, anyone that questions or, you know, wants to have a more cautious approach is, is a bad person, is a transphobic bigot and so what i see with these kids and they come from often the most loving and devoted families is that they become convinced that their parents are are not safe their home is not safe because the parents draw the line at you know denying reality. In other words, these are parents that will do anything for their kids, but they will not deny the reality of their child's biological sex, and they will not go along with the new name and pronouns. They will not take their child to a gender clinic where they're going to be placed on blockers and hormones and so you see risks within the family that previously were not there. That previously, you know, the kids will tell me, I always thought my parents were, were great people. They were the most wonderful people. But now I'm really doubting that. And they're, you know, I'm seeing who they really are. And they're not good people. And some kids become estranged from their families. So this is a terribly destructive situation. And just going back to how I started, and I explained to you, Teresa, that this was the hardest thing that I've dealt with as a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And that's because in the past, the situations that I've seen, you know, the, the, the tragedies that I've seen have been due to Illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, you know, and I've seen suicidal individuals and I've seen, I've been through suicides with families, but you see, this is different because those were due to illnesses, terrible psychiatric illnesses, but this is a man-made catastrophe. This is due to the man-made, I call it a a crusade, a crusade of gender ideology, which has no basis in science, no basis in medicine. These kids are all healthy. They're physically healthy. What they have is an emotional disorder, but it has been caused by this crusade of, of gender ideology that has moved through our previously trusted institutions, our medical institutions, mental health, educational, uh, legal, government. It's just moved through these institutions, and it is causing ter- terrible, terrible harm. So I wrote the book to educate parents. The book is not only for parents that might be going through this calamity right now. It's also a book for parents to help them protect their families in the future, to inoculate their kids so that their kids will not be sucked into these false beliefs. And the book is written for everyday moms and dads. You do not need a Ph.D. to read the book, as I'm sure you can attest to. It's, it's written in everyday language. I mean, there is a lot of science in it. There's a lot of medicine because I explain to parents everything they need to know so that when they, you know, so that they can be sure, 100% sure, without any doubt that there is no legitimate argument for these kids to uh, go through any sort of what they call transition, whether it's social transition, or, of course, medical or surgical transition. Yeah.
1: What you're doing, Doctor, is just so, so important. We're talking with Miriam Grossman, M.D. She's a board-certified in child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry, the author of five books, and her work, as we mentioned earlier, has been translated now into 11 languages. The title of this latest book, Lost in Transnation. we'll put a link to it on the Catholic Connection archives. I highly recommend it, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide, Out of the madness. What you started with in the beginning, Doctor, was an understanding of where this came from. A lot of us think that it came all of a sudden. Like it's just, we see this now the last, I think, five, maybe six, ten years. Everything is trans this, trans that. But this idea and this push goes way back, does it not?
3: Certainly does. And I write about that in detail in the book. And Teresa, you might be aware that I first warned parents about transgenderism and that it was being taught in our sex education by Planned Parenthood and by SECUS using our federal tax dollars. And I wrote about that in 2009 in my book, You're Teaching My Child What? Um, Mm -hmm. And I wrote there how uh, this, this ideology of teaching kids that they could, you know, that are that being male and female is separate from our biology, that our biology, our chromosomes, our anatomy is completely separate from our identity as male or female. This is what um, I discovered when I was researching sex education, and I discovered a whole lot of other awful material, but this was perhaps the most disturbing. And so I wrote in that book that was published in 2009. It, it actually just came out a few weeks ago in paperback. You're teaching my child what? And I explained that um, this is going to be a disaster for our kids. Unfortunately, it was not picked up. It wasn't really noticed at that time, and it has taken you know this current epidemic or pandemic, you could even say, of confused kids for everybody to notice it, but the origins, to answer your question, the origins of this idea that biology doesn't matter when it comes to male and female goes back many, many decades, and it started with a psychologist by the name of John Money. Some people may have heard of him, a no, no, notorious, um, immoral, evil uh, individual uh who proposed this idea had a theory his gender theory was that um, we are born blank slates we are born uh, all of us with the possibility of of living as males or females now he was a, an emotionally disturbed individual as I explain in the book um, a a very a very bad player and what happened is that he told the world that he had proven his theory, um, after a family came to him, uh, uh, a, a, a young blue collar family that had experienced a, a the tragedy of one of their twin boys, uh, while being circumcised as a as an eight month old, something went wrong with the equipment, and so the family was left with the situation of of their twins. One of them being a uh, a, a normal anatomically normal boy, the other one uh, was born normal, but he had had his penis burnt off. And to make a long story short, they they went to John Money, and he instructed
1: them to raise this boy
3: Doctor hang on we
1: have to take a break I don't want you to get interrupted but I have to make time for our satellite break we'll also get cut off we'll continue our conversation with Miriam Grossman MD and her very important book Lost in Transnation A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness with the foreword by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson we'll be right back on Catholic Connections stay tuned The book is Lost in Transnation: A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. Our guest is Miriam Grossman, the author, MD. The book and the forward. Forward was actually written by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, and Miriam Grossman wrote this book. And I had her on more than once with her first book, as she mentioned before the break. But she's on top of this and does such excellent research. All right. So continuing the story about where this all happened and how really this began with John Money. I'm going to let you wrap that up because we got uh, had to wrap up. Yeah,
3: sure, sure what happened with John Money is that he instructed these parents to raise this boy as a girl. And then after a number of years, he reported that it was a complete success. And uh, this was in the sixties, the seventies. It made a huge, huge splash. It was, you know, publicized worldwide that a boy was successfully being raised as a girl. It became doctrine. It became, part and parcel of many disciplines, psychology, sociology, even some medical disciplines, that it was possible to successfully raise a boy as a girl and that biology could be denied. Now, uh, what actually happened with this child was that he was miserable being raised as a girl, even though he had no idea since this all began when he was so, so young but he hated being dressed in, in dresses and given dolls, and he had no idea why. Um, this is a story that, that everyone should be aware of. He ended up becoming suicidal when he was entering his teen years. He had been miserable all those years, never fit in, was extremely masculine in the way that he spoke and moved and his interests the kids in school called him Cave Woman. It was a terrible situation and eventually the parents went against Dr. Money's instructions and told him that he had been born a boy and he immediately went back to living as a boy. He had all sorts of surgeries to construct male genitalia. He ended up marrying a woman and adopting her three kids but unfortunately he had been he and his brother had really been damaged by the whole experience. Dr. Money also had had sexually abused these boys. It's just a horrific story. They ended up both dying young. Uh, uh, the, 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 the other twin ha- died of an overdose, and and David, the twin who had been raised as a girl, killed himself in his 30s. So this all only became clear. In the late 90s, it only became evident that, it, that, that this, this uh, experiment on these boys had been a disaster. Now, the thing is that this experiment was supposed to have been John Money's proof of concept, proof of the concept that biology didn't matter. And it was obviously a disaster because biology does matter. And when we try to deny biology, we pay a price. And just getting back to the current situation, these kids and young adults that are being given uh, medications that interfere with their development and hormones that cause the opposite sex puberty and opposite sex characteristics and then surgeries, they are ending up with a long list of medical problems whereas their emotional problems, which is what got them into this in the first place are not being addressed. So I describe in the book some of my patients who have gone through what's being called what's being touted as gender affirming care Mm -hmm. it's being touted by government officials like Admiral Dr. Rachel Levine it's being touted as life-saving. It is none of those things. We don't have evidence of that at all. In fact, it may be that the kids are doing worse emotionally on the other side of this. They may be more suicidal on the other side of it when they realize that they cannot become the opposite sex um, and they have damaged their bodies and they might in fact have been sterilized. So this is something that parents have to fight tooth and nail. And I know that it's an uphill battle, but I am providing in my book the practical guidance in order to fight this social movement. And for example, I have an entire chapter on schools. I want parents to understand what's going on in schools and how the schools have been co-opted by these this radical ideology. And I provide also an appendix about schools, how kids, how parents need to be proactive and know their rights. The appendix mm-hmm. is written by lawyers who are experts in this field. Uh, parents have constitutional rights when it comes to their, the education and upbringing of their kids. The parents have the rights to make those decisions, not the schools. And, you know, there are losses now that are being, you know, making their way through the courts. It's going to take time, but I promise you that all this is going to, is, is coming to a head. And, um, those that are responsible for harming our kids, both in the medical profession, and in the educational profession and the legal profession are going to be held responsible. So I don't want people to feel helpless. There's so
1: much that parents can do to
3: prevent this disaster from hitting their family.
1: That's why your book is so helpful. I mean, it's, it's shocking. We think we know so much uh, about it because it's in the news all the time, and, and, and it's being covered in terms of from the different outlets, the conservative outlets like ours who are speaking the truth and allowing people like you to have a voice on on these programs but it's so well documented. That's what I really appreciate, even as, as shocking as some of these things are, that you'd be surprised that it's even worse than, than what we're seeing out there now in terms of how long this has been going on. The book is Lost in Transnation: A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. And I know we only have about two minutes left, and I appreciate you staying with us. I know you're just getting over COVID and that you're still struggling with your voice, but this is so important, and I'd like to even have you back on for, for another interview. But What I'm seeing is, if you look at Europe, real quickly, Europe is starting to get a clue of how problematic this is because several places and and nations that would even be considered more progressive in a bad way than ours have put a kibosh or at least slowed down these so-called transitional surgeries. Are we starting to get a clue here in the United States yet, do you think, Doctor?
3: I do believe that we are, and you're right, Teresa. Thank you for bringing up that very important point. Sweden, Norway, Finland, the United Kingdom, and Denmark, as you said, very, quote-unquote, progressive countries, LGBT-friendly countries. They looked at the data regarding these kids, and they did a careful analysis and decided that there is no evidence of long-term benefit of these medical interventions in minors, that there is evidence of long-term harm. And so, yes, they have done a 180, and they have severely restricted access to these
1: treatments. Well, at least that's, that's a start. Doctor, we're out of time. Thank you so much. We'll have you back on to do more on this book, Lost in Transnation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness, from Miriam Grossman, N.D. We'll be right back.
5: You're listening to the best of
0: Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamia. <coughs>
1: We can all use more insight and help in developing and really strengthening our prayer life with the Lord. I'm so excited to hear about this new effort from my dear friend, Dr. Edward Shree. When you pray, a clear path to a deeper relationship with God. How to cultivate a rich and lasting prayer life. So the website from Ascension Press has tons of information on this. But first, let's go to the person himself, Dr. Shree. Good morning. Great to talk to you again.
0: Buongiorno. Good to be with you again.
1: Buongiorno. All right, so tell us about this. So now we have you have a book and you have a workbook that goes with this, and videos, is that correct?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm so excited about this. Out of all the programs I've done, I think this is the one that my heart is probably in the most, because many of the things I've done have been about the Catholic faith, about the Mass, about Mary, right. about what we believe. This is about the real lived relationship with God. And this is, this is where, you know, God changes us, transforms us the most. It's in our prayer life. So the book in the program is not about how to pray. It's more about how do I cooperate with God in prayer? How do I grow in trust? How do I allow God to lead my life more? How do I experience the transformation He wants to do in my soul? So there, yes, there is a book and the book could stand on its own. It has 30 short reflections. Uh, that you can use for your morning prayer. You can take it to the chapel, use it in your house, and it's all little reflections based on the saints. So not every three's ideas. I'm just introducing you to St. Catherine of Siena. I'm introducing you to St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. John of the Cross, all the, the wisdom of the Catholic spiritual tradition applied to our walk with God today. But the video series, so that's a, a, for a faith formation program, that That part of the program, what you can use is use it for a men's group, a women's group, a Bible study group, and we filmed around the great country of Italy <laughs> and it, where so many saints have a connection, they either oh, they're crazy there, there, and there. there.
5: right. Yeah.
0: died there, or there's relics there. So we went all over, and you get to get to know Saint Catherine of Siena, and you see where she was raised. You go to CZ C. 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 C., where Saint Francis was. We went out to uh, to Subiaco, where Saint Benedict lived in the cave and started, you know, his his new life at the beginning of the Benedictine Order. So it, we're filming in all these places, but it's an introduction to all the big themes in Catholic spirituality and how we walk with God. So. I have sections where we talk a lot about the life of prayer. We talk about the struggles everybody has in prayer. We get distracted. Prayer gets dry. We don't feel close to God. And how God, how, what, what does God do in the midst of those struggles? We talk about trust. How do I grow in trust? How do I surrender to God's will? How do I find deeper interior peace? How do I overcome the many weaknesses I have? How can I just be a better dad, a better husband, and, and allow God to change my heart in prayer so I could be the, the man I need to be for my wife and for my children? So it's a very practical, um, and uh, it's been so fun getting the chance to The book just came out and getting to speak on it and hear so many Catholics tell me, I don't have a regular prayer life. I yeah. know I should pray. I just say prayers. I need to have that quiet time, and and they're they're wanting to respond to the challenge to build in daily prayer, and it's very encouraging.
1: We're talking with Dr. Edward Shree, of course, from the Augustine Institute, EWTN, Focus, Ascension Press, and for more information on When You Pray, ascensionpress.com, subtitled Clear Path to a Deeper Relationship with God. There is a book and a workbook and a video series, a seven-part series with thirty minute videos so you could really i mean if you wanted to you could do this on your own but i always think it's helpful to do this in a group because it's really great to hear what other people have to say
0: absolutely and i, I there's so many wonderful resources as you know out there on marriage on the sacraments on the bible and uh... This, i don't know of other resources like this it's like a bible study on prayer you know so you could be with your other sisters in christ in, in your women's group And you're sharing here. You're learning about the life of prayer together. You're learning about the spiritual life, and and as you pointed out, Teresa, when you are doing it in a group with other people, you just you learn from their experiences, what their struggles are, how they face them, and it it really is enriching. So that's why, again, the the book can stand on its own. You could just use it for your prayer life. That's awesome. But I think the the real the real impact is when you can meet with a group and really talk about the wisdom of John of the Cross together or St. Therese of Lisieux and apply it to your life together as brothers and sisters in Christ.
1: So it looks like, I'm looking at the promo video, which is beautifully shot, as I'm sure the whole series is, because you guys do such, such great work production-wise, very easy to watch and, and listen to. It looks like you went to the church where they have the ecstasy of uh, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, the Bernini statue. Is that correct? Did I catch that? Did I see that in yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a
0: beautiful, beautiful statue. Yeah, it's statue. I try to bring out, and we use that as an example, that when you hear the stories of the saints, sometimes it's, it's a little overwhelming. You know, you hear them, they levitate, and they stay up all night in prayer, and they read people's souls and bilocate, and I can't do that. <laughs> so I can't relate to them. And we use this scene, it's a famous story called the transverberation, uh, which means piercing through, and it's where Teresa Vattle has this dream, or this vision mm-hmm. of an angel coming and stabbing her with a, an arrow that's on fire. And they are like, well, that's crazy. <laughs> what is that all about? But I think the extraordinary things that God does in the saints, like that story, point to the ordinary, wonderful work he wants to do in souls like you and me, is that he wants to pierce our hearts through with his love. He wants to strengthen us in our weakness. He wants to soften our hard hearts. He wants to expand our hearts. So so like it was extraordinary what happened with Teresa, but the saints are beyond us. That's what I, I bring throughout the book, is that, they God did do amazing things in them, but sometimes we as Catholics we make them like Catholic superheroes. And I don't have the superhero power, so I can't relate to them. Because I want to bring them down and show that no, no, they were like us. They they had disputes. They made mistakes. They, they it wasn't about a perfectionism. I think that's what we think holiness is
4: right. perfectionism.
0: I have never make a mistake. You look at the lives of the saints. They made mistakes. They fought with each other. They you know they they, they things. They oh I wish I did this differently. They had struggles. But here's the thing, God. Met them in those weaknesses and struggles and transformed him, transformed them with his grace. And that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. And that's what I'm trying to bring out in the book. It's all about the walk with God in the spiritual life.
1: Well, if you just look for example at St. Teresa of Avila, I think she even though she's right one of the greatest mystics that ever lived and she's you know loved by people not only in the church but outside the church for her the gifts that she left us in her writings and whatnot, but I I like her because she's so real. Like she talks about getting distracted during adoration and like counting the the holes in the wall or the nail. I mean, she's looking around at the bricks on the wall. So she had a problem with distraction. And and this was <laughs> a doctor of the church, right?
0: Yeah, this and this is what I want to bring out, is that the common struggles that we have in prayer, the reason many people don't pray regularly is because they feel like they're not good at prayer. I feel like my mind wanders all the time, I don't feel close to God when I'm praying, is it really worth it, and and I always tell people, you know, you know, what? the saints have those same struggles. You know, I share some wisdom, for example, in the book, I have several chapters on something St. Catherine of Siena describes, I think it's so important is that the devil often will use discouragement to get us to stop praying, because he knows how powerful prayer is. And when we're just sitting quietly with the Lord, we feel like we're not accomplishing anything, it's easier, I'll just pray my rosary. You know, no, no, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, all the great things talk about you need to have that quiet time with God in prayer, that meditation Mm -hmm. every day. But the devil will discourage us to think our prayer is not pleasing to God. So if you ever have those thoughts, I think at prayer, I don't know how to pray, I'm too distracted, my heart's not in it, I don't feel I can get anything out of it, that's not from God, that's from the devil, because he wants to discourage us to keep us from praying. And, and Catherine reminds us that, you know what, even if our mind wanders or our heart wasn't in it, what's most important is you can still give God your intention. Like if you if you come to prayer and you say, what want I give you this time, and it doesn't turn out the best, it's still something beautiful that you're giving to God. I, I give, I gave you this time, Lord. And I'll just say one last thing here. One example. This is a true story I share in the book. Is that on Mother's Day one year, my little girls went into the backyard to go find flowers in the field behind our house to, to give to Beth, and put them in a nice vase, filled it with water, and we're waiting for mommy to come down. And then uh, the funny thing is, though, the, the flowers in the vase weren't really flowers. They were weeds, and they weren't even the cute dandelions. You know, dandelions look like pretty flowers, you know, but they right. weren't even dandelions. They were those thorny, spiky weeds that look like they came out of hell or something. <laughs> it really didn't look pretty. But my wife comes down the stairs. They go, here, Mommy. And my wife just smiles and gives them a hug and says, thank you so much. This is beautiful. You know, because she saw not just what was inside the vase. She saw their hearts. And, and that they wanted to give their mommy a present. And I think our Heavenly Father looks at us the same way. We might go to prayer and feel like, man, I I was just distracted. I was just a waste of time. Or we may feel like empty, like my vase is empty. But what's most important is that God sees our intention. If I really come and say, God, I give you this time. And even if it goes badly, I can still give God that. I can give him my empty vase and and he'll smile and rejoices Because it's not about the feelings. Love is in the will. and It's the commitment to be faithful to Jesus in time, giving him time every day in prayer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we all have those times when we're, we're sitting there. Where we just say, you know what? I got nothing right now. I just want to be here with you. I just, I, I'm just, just here. Just speak to me. Just, just take what I have, whether it's, you know, as you said, an empty vessel right now. There's not, What you're because you're still making time to be with God.
0: In fact, there's a, a great story of a of Mother Teresa that I tell in the book about a priest that I know that was doing a retreat with with her and the sisters, and he was in the chapel and with Mother Teresa, and he was distracted in prayer and walking out, feeling a little mad about his prayer life. And then priest all of a sudden looks him in the eye. He didn't say anything about what happened in his prayer time, but she read his soul and says, "Father, never leave the chapel feeling discouraged. Never feel like you gave, like 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 you accomplished nothing. Give God your nothing. Like you can still give that to God in humility. Lord, this is the best I could do. I, I, I think this is so important. Think I quote Saint Faustine in the book where she says." One act of trust in such moments in prayer, moments of darkness, dryness, distraction, she says one act of trust in those moments gives God more glory than countless hours spent in consolation. Because, again, it was when you get the feelings in prayer, I got good insights, I felt close to God, that's wonderful, it's a gift, but that's not a sign of my holiness. It's when I actually trust God that this is worth my time, even if I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. That gives God more glory than when I get all these feelings out of prayer because I'm making the act of the will and the sacrifice. It's hard to be there, and I'm trusting him that this prayer makes a difference in my life, even when I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it.
1: Now, Ted, you can sign up, and I just did that, by the way, for a free preview of When You Pray, a clear path to a Deeper relationship with God, right?
0: Yeah, you can go right there on the Ascension Press website. You go to ascensionpress.com slash when You take it right there when you slash pray uh, and you get a free preview. You can just review the videos, and you'll, you'll get to see that. Yeah, you know, as you pointed out, they they did just an amazing job. Beautiful cinematography, but it brings you into the sights of the various saints. You know, so we, I think the episode, the opening episode is on Mother Teresa, and we talk about how she came to Rome and the first house she built in Rome, and you get to see those places as we talk about her spiritual life. So it's a great way to get to know the many great saints and make them relatable to your own life and apply them in the struggles you have in prayer and in your spiritual life.
1: It gives you, I think, a bigger picture of who they were and how they made the effort to get to these locations that meant so much to them, even if they were dry for a particular day, and just be with God in those locations.
0: Yeah, the theme of pilgrimage actually is kind of a of the, the theme of the study. Uh, the opening chapter of the book, I talk about the, what I call the pilgrimage of prayer. And the point I make, and you'll appreciate this, is, you know, when you go to, like, St. Peter's or you go to all these wonderful sites, you know, you see all these tourists. They come in, they take their picture, they go, wow, this is beautiful, but, you know, they don't really understand what what this church is all about. This church is meant is built to, to facilitate an encounter with Jesus right. <laughs> and an encounter with him and the saints. And, and so a, a pilgrim goes into that church differently. It goes into the same church, admires the beauty, and, you know, learns about the history but they're going to 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 meet Jesus. They're going to encounter God and let God speak to them through the beauty, through the statues, through the saint that's buried there, and, and that's what prayer is. Prayer isn't just about going to the chapel and I, I say words, you know, or I just read something or I just learn something. I hear many people tell me that, oh, oh, Doctor, yeah, I pray. I, I listen to a podcast. And I'm like, hey, you know, listening to podcasts is great. That can enrich your spiritual life, but that's not technically prayer. Right. Uh, or they say, you know, I, I pray our fathers and Hail Marys, or I pray the rosary, or I do the morning prayer, or evening prayer of the church. Again, those are beautiful parts of, of prayer life. We should have those as part of our life. But all the saints are calling us to that deeper level of prayer that we need if we really want to be transformed. Mm-hmm. If I want really God's love to change my heart that happens only when we have that quiet time in prayer where I'm listening to God listening to the baca divina or ignatian meditation yep. you know these kinds of quiet time prayers personal prayer that's what's most essential
1: amen and get a lot out of this with those examples when you pray a clear path to a deeper relationship with god a book a workbook and a video series seven sessions with our friend dr edward shree ascensionpress.com for more information and we're going to have him back on in the end of the month with more on this program
4: More information, including franchise opportunities, is on the web at visitingangels.com. Food for the journey, Sister and Shield. You no,
5: know, we would avoid a lot of difficult arguments, just spouting off at the mouth as we sometimes say, just ask the Lord, give me the words to say. Maybe I'm rightfully angry, but if I just shout and yell and scream, what good is that going to be? Brothers and sisters, God can give us much more control over our anger, over our fear, over our language. And so whenever you're in a tight spot, just stop for a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? God is good. I don't mean he's going to say words that will come down from heaven. But if you pause just for a moment, you'll get hold of yourself and you may well get a thought. you didn't have before and sometimes it's just quiet but it's enough to bring down the steam and then you think what is really right to say here you might be justifiably angry how do we respect the other person while we're correcting them please brothers and sisters let us open our hearts to God in those moments
4: sister Ann shields gives you food for the journey weekday mornings at 645 and again at 1130 on 990 Ave Maria Radio.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the EWTN and the Ave Maria Radio Networks. Find us both online, EWTN.com and AveMariaRadio.net. In addition to the archives you'll find daily at the archive section of AveMariaRadio.net, I always want to encourage you for news and views from a truly Catholic Perspective, please visit our news sources. It's so important to make sure that you are seeing things through the lens, as Al Cresta always says, of Scripture. And the teachings of the Catholic Church. So, how do you do that? Well, my faves: Catholic News Agency. I use them every day. CatholicNewsAgency.com, the National Catholic Register, NCRegister.com. and then of course there are great programs here on the EWTN network that help you take a look at the news again through a Catholic perspective. You have the World Over with News Director Raymond Arroyo. You have EWTN News nightly, every single night, covering all the stories. In the U.S. and around the world, you have In-Depth. It's a relatively new program looking at issues in-depth from a news perspective. So just to keep that in mind, when you see something out there in the news or in the world and you're troubled by it, come to us. We've got the resources. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. Catholic Connection is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our producer is Andrew Kruchek. For copies of this program or for more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. That's AveMariaRadio.net. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another edition of Catholic Connection.